And now for introductions for today's lecture. Um, this talk is actually part of our High Value Care series. And as a reminder, this series supports outstanding clinicians and teachers to advance the practice of high value care through pragmatic, patient-centered, evidence-based medicine in order to avoid waste and optimize care. I'm absolutely delighted to introduce today's speaker. It is Dr. Dan Morgan, who is a physician and epidemiologist in Baltimore, Maryland, um, specifically trained in infectious disease. He's a tenured professor of epidemiology and medicine at University of Maryland School of Medicine, where he directs the Center for Innovation in Diagnosis. Dr. Morgan also serves as Chief of Epidemiology at the VA Maryland Healthcare System. His research explores, among various topics, the probability in medicine, medical overuse, diagnostic stewardship, and infection prevention. Dr. Morgan maintains continuous federal funding and has published over 170 peer-reviewed articles. Despite missing the opportunity to host him here in Portland, where I understand he did his undergrad, um, we are delighted to learn from him today. Um, thank you for your expertise and your passion and welcome virtually back to Portland, Dr. Morgan. I'll turn it over to you. All right, great. Um, thank you um, everyone for your attention and for that uh, gracious introduction. Um, just to make certain you're able to see my slides. Okay, great. Good. Thank you, perfect. Okay, well, um, yeah, so uh, I'm here in Baltimore. I uh, wish I could be there in person with you in Portland. It seemed like this summer there was a brief window where this looked like it was going to happen, but uh, glad to, to be speaking with you regardless. And uh, and as mentioned uh, by Dr. Leitcher, um, you know, Reed College 1996 is probably the, you know, the, the most important connection I had to Portland um, before getting married to my wife who, who uh, went to high school and grew up in Portland. All right, so disclosures, um, I think nothing very relevant uh, beyond that, uh, you know, I, sh I should caveat this with saying I'm an ID doctor talking about general medicine. So um, I will try to uh, be, be cautious because I uh, certainly know that um, lots of people practicing general medicine full time, um, you know, have a, a great deal more day to day experience with this. But I, I do think there's some important perspectives that can be gained by trying to uh, spend a lot of time delving into certain aspects of, of medicine. OK, so I'm going to start with a story. Um, and uh, so there are these two young fish swimming along and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way who nods at them and says, morning, boys, how's the water? The two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the hell is water? So this is a story um, I took from David Foster Wallace. Probably some of you recognize it. It was a Kenyan uh, graduation. And, and the point of this is really that uh, the most obvious and important realities are often ones that are hardest to see and talk about. And, and I think this is key for medicine too. And I'll propose that there are some, some uh, aspects, you know, some water that we are unaware of, even though we swim in it daily. So um, another way of thinking about, uh, you know, how how we know what to do in medicine is, you know, how we know what we know in medicine. 
uh, back at Reed College when I was uh, struggling through just trying to pass medical humanities and uh, people talked about epistemology. I really didn't know what what they were referring to, I don't think, but but maybe now 30 years later, um, I, uh, you know, have, have at least gotten into the idea. So the idea of medical epistemology or how we know what we know in medicine. And uh, Adam Rodman has a great podcast, Bedside Rounds, um, and there's also a book by Catherine Montgomery, How Doctors Think, um, that, that really uh, has a lot more information along these lines. But I think it's helpful for thinking about medicine generally. So there's different ways that we have information that we then uh, build into what we think is appropriate to, to use for patients. So there's a lot of theory, you know, which is just kind of rational thinking based upon a theory that we see the world um, by. And so I'll start out with ones that are probably less accepted um, by by the general audience here. So humoralism, so the idea of four humors, you know, was the dominant uh, belief in medicine for probably a thousand years. And I would argue that, you know, still some elements of it certainly seem alive with the idea of, you know, that's often reported of too many toxins or not enough vitamins or minerals. This idea that you have imbalance in things in your body and that leads to disease. Um, I think there are other theories that, have, you know, again, the practices are mostly built upon theory with less, uh, at least research on uh, how to practice them from clinical research like osteopathy and homeopathy. But I would also include other things that we spend, you know, much of our medical school training learning about, which is uh, pathophysiological or anatomical reasoning, immunology, microbiology, genetics, et cetera. So, and this is not to say that these are not true. These are all, you know, very, you know, interesting, relevant um, approaches uh, and theories that develop, but they often don't have direct information from clinical patients uh, as far as how they should be best applied. Um, and then modeling, you know, the the uh, the great winner during the the pandemic. I don't know if there have been many other winners, but modeling has really taken over. Um, it just takes parts of um, of theory, but also some empirical data. But it often uh, pieces a lot of things together with a lot of spaces filled in with uh, estimates, which which may actually really define the model. So contrast that to empiricism. And that's actual in clinical data that's obtained by um, different forms. So the the most uh, sort of simple and like uh, in a present for for many generations is observation and direct experience. We all know who all of us who are clinicians know that this is a, a big part of how we learn to do what we do, which is actually just by experiencing it. Um, but of course, our experience is limited by the the limited number of patients that we can see. Um, and then there's clinical studies, and there's often been this distinction between observational and randomized controlled trials, which I think is relevant. Um, observational studies, of course, are much easier and, uh, you know, can address some questions you can't with RCTs, but RCTs are probably a much stronger and reliable way of getting a sense of, of um, if you change one variable, how much does it change um, outcomes? But I'd say that RCTs are really focused on does a test or treatment ever work? You know, this is sort of idea that if an RCT is negative, well, then you know it doesn't work. If it's positive, um, that doesn't always mean that it works a lot versus a little. And uh, we often don't really discuss RCTs beyond yes, it works or no, it doesn't. And that's where I'd argue medical probability comes in, which is how much or how often does it work? Um, and this is something that we can, uh, information we can get from clinical trials. 
And so the, the sort of provocative way I'll start this is to say, I think the way that we practice medicine now doesn't use the, the evidence we have. And I think we can do it better. And part of that is going back to, to, to ideas that aren't new. So uh, this is a quote from William Osler. Uh, feels like you know, a mandatory part of, of many grand rounds. Um, so he said, medicine is a science of uncertainty and an art of probability. I would maybe reverse what's the science and art, but um, it's notable that even a few years ago in New England Journal, um, clinicians at uh, Harvard um, argued that tolerating uncertainty may be the next medical revolution. So despite having more than 100 years of this being a, you know, certainly a part of what we do in medicine, we are still working on tolerating uncertainty and uncertainty and probability really go hand in hand. If you accept probability, then you accept uncertainty, right? Anyone who believes in uh, voting prediction and you know, watch the 2016 election understood the, the, the role of uh, probability and actual the true uncertainty that can, can be there with uh, results. Okay, so how do we teach probability in medicine? This is where I think we, we really haven't uh, done any favors for, for our students. And, uh, and you know, I think we devote a few hours in medical school really as math equations. So, you know, not to, to give anybody sort of flashbacks, but, you know, this idea of two by two tables, which are, you know, our bread and butter in epidemiology for sure. And uh, I've never loved two by two tables. Um, so, you know, you, you have test result on one side and disease positive or negative on the other side. And you always have to remember which one's top or left. And then people develop these formulas, you know, that, that have a lot of true and false positives and negatives. And to me, it can be a little bit hard to keep straight um, and that's why I think people often confuse sensitivity and specificity, although I would argue these are key concepts that we have. Similarly, for treatment, we can set up a two by two table um, that talks about the event exposure rate and the control exposure rate and the absolute risk reduction and the relative risk reduction. But when we talk about formulas like this, which is the way that we've been teaching this, and I think most people do in medical schools, um, it tends to be something that's memorized and forgotten. And, uh, and, and as uh, Drew Foy, a cardiologist friend at Penn State pointed out, you know, I think mostly this is beaten, beaten out of students during clinical rotations where they don't see this being applied. And I would argue that medical probability is primarily taught by aphorisms. So what do I mean? So I think one of the, the most famous ones that um, people know is when you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras, um, which when I uh, started working at University of Maryland, was surprised to learn that actually came out of, of uh, University of Maryland uh, from Ted Woodward. And really the corollary um, and even easier to, to understand aphorism, common things are common, which is great, right? I think that we should never lose track of this, but it's, it's far from actually teaching probability. So then there's some other ones. Uh, there's an article by Paul Burgle uh, a few years ago that has pseudo probabilistic aphorisms. And I think this is great to where we ask, well, what does this really mean? Although these are these are phrases that probably all of us have used, you know, until proven otherwise, diagnosis of exclusion, high index of suspicion, low threshold, and within a reasonable degree of medical probability. Now, I think it's only the last one for those who have been involved in medical legal cases that that even really has a clear definition. 
But I would argue that medical probability is the scientific basis for most of what we do. It's the basis for diagnosis. You know, how do we talk about, does a test work? Um, the, the real uh, metric that we try to use is sensitivity and specificity, and then apply that to individual patients through po positive predictive value and negative predictive value. Also, for interpreting clinical trials, so really seeing, you know, how, do, how does a treatment work and does it work? Um, we talk about relative risk reduction, absolute risk reduction, or number needed to treat. These are all concepts that depend on probability. So while I think probability is really the basic science underlying clinical medicine, pathophysiology is still the dominant paradigm. And, and I really think that that explains a lot of what we do. I think it's hard to hold sort of competing views of, of how we know what we know. And uh, if, if one thinks pathophysiologically, which I find most residents do when, when I'm on a team or talking about cases, um, it gives often fairly different answers than when one thinks about um, clinical studies and probability. And this goes back a long time. So, um, you know, a, a great physician in the history of medicine is Rudolf Virchow. Uh, when I came across this quote a few years ago, I was struck by it in part because he's also been a, he was a big proponent of the importance of social medicine and uh, during like ec epidemics in Silesia, um, you know, and focusing on them being conditions of poverty. But he said in the 1850s, and this is when medicine was trying to shift from humoralism to more pathophysiology, that medical practice is nothing but a minor offshoot of pathophysiology pathological physiology is developed in laboratories of animal experimentation, which to me is striking because I think it really describes the way that uh, a lot of people still view medical science, um, but also that, that this was said, you know, more than 150 years ago when I really don't know what you could take away from animal laboratories to, uh, to apply to, to patient care. So, I would argue that we need a paradigm shift. Um, and this idea of paradigm shifts is from Thomas Kuhn um, from a long time ago uh, in this book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And he argued that we have periods of normal silence that are uh, science that are interrupted by periods of revolutionary science where, where we really change something that we do. And, and I think the time is ripe for kind of a move away from some of the incremental changes that we've had from really the uh, pathophysiology dominated approach to medicine. Um, medical school boards are modernizing. Step one is becoming pass-fail, which I think is is great and was needed for a long time. And, you know, this hopefully will will largely do away with people spending a lot of time memorizing things like Krebs cycle or how CAMP works, which is not to say they're bad, but I, I think they are kind of a version of uh, lab science from the 1960s. And certainly I've found them to have very minimal role in my clinical practice. Um, and additionally, the clinical skills test is canceled. So what do I mean by medical probability? Um, so, you know, modern medicine, um, you know, distinguishes itself from regular medicine that, you know, medicine for millennia has helped people by comforting, giving explanation for their pain and guiding them through the terror of illness and death, which is very real. But that isn't why doctors in healthcare are elevated to our current status in society. Um, it is because of a belief that we make diagnoses and treatment better and can improve uh, the outcome of humans. So we focus on diagnosis leading to treatment to improved outcomes. And the, the model really is that uh, 
we work on diagnosis um, using probability for possible diseases. And uh, so, you know, figuring out the pretest probability. And I'd say, although we describe this as the process that should be used, uh, it's hard to find clear guides for this. So uh, in general, it seems like the best evidence is uh, to, to look at the incidence of disease, um, factors found from the history and physical exam to generate pretest probability and then to apply um, updating. So Bayesian updating or Bayesian reasoning. Um, again, there's another term that I thought people said mostly to sound smart when I first started uh, this area. And I realize now that it's really a kind of a simple fundamental concept that may be hard to apply, but, but is, uh, and it just has a lot of face validity. And that's that you have new information like a test or a test result, and that should change the probability. But key to this is knowing that it changes probabilities, um, not that it um, eliminates probability. So, you know, and how do we think about probabilities for testing and treatment? Um, I'm putting up this image, which many of you have probably seen, sort of from evidence-based medicine training. And, uh, and this is the, the idea that um, as probability of disease change, our actions should change. So if, um, if probability is very low, it probably doesn't make sense to test because we have problems of, of errors or false of false positives. So we can have test results that are positive even though someone doesn't have disease. So there's some threshold, which again is an indistinct you know, number. That, you, know, you can't say 5% or 10% or 20%. It's more of a concept. And then on the high end, if something is very likely, we probably shouldn't be testing for it because we know that tests can have errors and can miss diagnoses, and yet you should still treat somebody. So if a disease is very likely, we shouldn't be testing them, but really just treating them. Okay, and what do I mean by test? So tests are any information making a disease more or less likely. So, you know, very traditionally, we can think of this as a blood test that gives a result, but I think there's also other things that, um, that we can think about in the same uh, context, which is imaging studies, um, or even the physical exam, that uh, different physical exam findings can be associated with uh, different changes in probability. This is the way that I think we actually approach testing, though. Um, you know, this is from the, an early version of Star Trek and Bones McCoy. Doctor here is examining Spock with just a probe that you kind of wave over him, don't even need to you know, unzip his uniform. And uh, the computer up here tells you what's wrong and gives you this you know, definite information that you, then you have to work from. And uh, during the pandemic, there was an article in Wired called the Magic Test Hypothesis, which uh, rung true to me as far as how we approach testing generally, not just COVID testing. So, um, you know, how should we think about testing? And I think we need a lot more nuance to and to use this more, more carefully. So one concept that is not talked about as explicitly as I think it should be is the idea of clinical versus laboratory sensitivity and specificity. So um, this was um, talked about in this article from Annals of Internal Medicine back in the 90s, but uh, the difference between analytical and clinical uh, definitions of these terms. So a lot of sensitivities and specificities that we see reported, like say the early FDA um, during the, the COVID pandemic would list all the tests and whatever information companies sent into them. And really they were talking about laboratory or analytic sensitivity and specificity. So that'd be like taking a swab and running it on two machines. 
Um, and it's great it, things need to work that way. You need to have that basis that at least the analytical step works, but it's really just the beginning because there's obviously a lot more to uh, knowing if a lab result being positive or negative means a patient has disease or not. And certainly that's not just what happens in the lab itself. So um, clinical sensitivity and specificity describes um, how well the test work versus clinical disease. So how accurately does it test detect disease or confirm disease is absent? And this requires clinical studies, not just lab comparisons. And I would argue that, that this information from clinical sensitivity and specificity does not conflict with microbiology or pathophysiology or any other basic science, but it adds and it really informs how, how important uh, different factors are that can be explained through the basic sciences. So let's take the example of COVID-19 testing and a, a incorrect COVID-19 test. So, you know, we know that um, not all COVID-19 tests that are positive are true positives. So there are positives in the absence of disease. We see this often with screening um, as uh, Casey Coffey and I described in a, a recent uh, JAMA diagnostic test interpretation, looking at pretest probability, uh, looking at um, pre-procedural screening for surgical patients. And we know that we can find positives that, that don't mean the patient has disease or that they're contagious. And, uh, and there's explanations that we get from microbiology or pathophysiology. Things like residual RNA is probably the number one reason for COVID-19. Um, also contamination of swabs um, or primer match or assay issues, which haven't really panned out to be as important as, as uh, people thought early on. Likewise, you get negative tests even in people who have infection. So these are missed cases, you know, or people can call them false negatives. Um, but uh, I, I tend to find that terminology not as easy to, to work with. So negatives with infection, you know, could be the, a result of poor sampling. If you don't actually sample the, the area where the virus is, you're not going to detect it. Um, if you have an infection not involving the you know, nose, mouth, or nasopharynx, um, there's no reason to think that um, you would um, have a positive test, even though they could have COVID, which is a, you know, um, a, a multi-system disease. Um, you know, and people are worried about variants of primer sites also, which again, um, hasn't really panned out. But probability lets us know how often these false positives or false negative tests occur. And this is really what's important, right? You could imagine residual RNA could be an unimportant issue and have no impact, or it could be very common. And we need to, to know the probability from clinical studies to know how much that, that matters. Um, likewise, for all these other issues, we need clinical data and that would give us probability so we could work with this better. So this type of thinking, um, as well as uh, you know, trying to follow some of the shared decision-making type, type research and some of the uh, tools that were created, led us to uh, thinking about the, the idea of, you know, really do doctors think in probabilities when testing patients? Um, and fortunately, we were, um, I was able to get uh, NIH funding with a new innovator award to, to look at this. And uh, Portland was one of the sites where we um, managed to survey a number of primary care docs. I believe all were through the OHSU system. Um, so uh, we asked a series of questions in a survey and, um, and the questions we tried to make pretty bread and butter and almost boringly simple, but asking questions that we thought may be difficult uh, to, to actually answer. 
So uh, we asked uh, clinicians, does this patient have cardiac ischemia? And uh, we described a 43-year-old premenopausal woman who presents with atypical chest pain in a normal ECG. She has no risk factors and normal vital signs in examination. So pretty boring, right? Um, and then we uh, asked beyond how likely is she to have cardiac ischemia? How likely is she to have cardiac ischemia after a positive or negative stress ECG test, which is the recommended first line um, evaluation for, for patients with cardiac, um, potentially cardiac ischemia. So um, these are the answers we, um, we had. Um, we enrolled over 550 clinicians across eight states. The conducting the study was, uh, was kind of, uh, way too much work, but I think it revealed some interesting results that um, that to, to me are very stimulating. So, um, so I'll orient you to the graph here. So the vertical um, displays density of answers. So this is how often people answered, and you can see if it's a really high number, then a lot more people answered in that range, um, but these aren't um, absolute units. And then on the, the horizontal axis, is the estimates that people gave for how likely they thought um, the patient was to have cardiac ischemia. So you can see here, and so that in the yellow um, box here is the, um, the best evidence for, for what uh, could be expected, which was one to 4%. So you can see that there's a broad range of what clinicians estimated, mostly below 20%, and there's a bump around 50%. So there was some overestimating of her chance of cardiac ischemia. Um, but not, not terribly bad. And then uh, this is after a positive ECG result. So if you were to, to do the test and use the, the standard sensitivity and specificity that's provided by uh, cardiology guidelines, um, the, the best answer would be two to 11%. So what we can see is with the stress ECG, um, the probability doesn't change much. It goes from one to four to two to 11%. Um, but the estimates of clinicians uh, was very different. Uh, you can see the median result was around 75%, you know, and many people thought it was 90 to 100%. So um, there was a, a strong overestimate of the, the importance of a positive test result. And then uh, a negative test result also um, didn't have a, a huge effect. You can see the green box is how much it should have gone down by, which is uh, zero to about 2.5%. Um, and still, there's a number of people who are overestimating, but it's not as dramatic. So the, the big finding we thought was that there's a, a strong overestimate of the chance of disease, especially with a positive test result. So we had a, a few different scenarios that we looked at in this study, um, and we found very similar findings for UTI, mammograms, and pneumonia, and published this uh, earlier this year in JAMA Internal Medicine um, with the help of Portlanders Chris Pfeiffer and Chris Turnder. So how does this relate to uh, testing practice and what's observed in, in you know, real life with testing? So we did a, a small study here in Baltimore that, that I think has some interesting and kind of provocative results. And so we tried to look at um, hospital testing. So this is patients within the first 24 hours of coming to the hospital at, at two hospitals here in town. And uh, there was a, an expert physician review of all the tests that occurred on each patient. And then we also asked clinicians who were taking care of this patient within the tw first 24 hours um, for their opinions. And so this graph is looking at the expert review. So uh, we found that uh, 
you know, 88% of patients had at least one unnecessary test. So it was fairly often that people had unnecessary testing. And we found that about 50% of patients who had testing had a change in management, and about 50% did not. So trying to give a sort of a big picture, absolute view of how, how important testing was for many of these patients. All of these patients, of course, had, had extensive testing. Um, and then we asked, what's the overall impact of any test on patient outcome, and found that about three quarters of tests that were done had no benefit or harm. Um, about 25% appeared to have benefit. And we tried to use a fairly liberal view of what benefit was, like if it led to other testing that, that may have had some uh, potential impact or if it allowed ruling out of disease that was of interest. And somewhat more interesting in a way, I think, was asking frontline providers. So uh, this was a, a chief resident who was doing the study and she ran around to team rooms on the, the day they were admitting patients and talked to the teams on the first day and, uh, and asked them about which tests had uh, which uh, tests had been done on the patient who they um, had, had completed their admission on and uh, if how much they thought the tests were necessary. And so clinicians um, were unaware of almost 40% of tests that had occurred and 71% of patients were deemed to have uh, tests that were unnecessary by their own treating uh, physicians. So again, trying to explore more about uh, the you know, clinicians who, who do test more aggressively. So this is looking at the same data that we used for um, the, the study I just talked about, um, looking at the probability of, of disease before and after testing. So we also looked at a number of clinician factors um, and we tried to look at how often um, clinicians would report that they would uh, do testing uh, that was often of uncertain value um, on their patients. And this was a group of, again, uh, over 550 um, clinicians uh, performing primary care. And so this is a somewhat complicated graph, and I know I uh, should never be saying that in a presentation, you know, as you go on to describe it. But I think it um, provides some, some provocative and kind of interesting thoughts. So we looked at um, how likely people were to test, and this is looking at those, the top quintile, so people who were uh, in the, the top 20% um, is saying they were most likely to test out of the group. And then we looked at a number of factors, so some kind of unchangeable factors like their age and degree in training and years in practice. And those revealed, um, so anything to the right of this dotted line reveals that those were overrepresented in the top quintile of testers. So what you can see is older clinicians, uh, nurse practitioners or PAs, and those who had been in practice for more than 10 years tended to test more often than, uh, than others. But then we also looked at things like a score for numeracy, a score for medical maximizer. This is asking how, how much they like to maximize medical care. Um, as there's a scale for stress due to uncertainty and uh, a, a scale for concern for bad outcomes. Uh, as well as we asked the question of if they accepted uncertainty as part of the practice of medicine. And what we found was that clinicians who tended to test much more had worse numeracy, were more stressed by uncertainty or worried about bad outcomes, and were categorized as medical maximizers. Um, I should note that we also looked at geographical region because this uh, study was done in, in the Northwest, in Texas, in the Mid-Atlantic. And um, it was notable that, that uh, clinicians in Portland did test much less than uh, clinicians in other areas, which was 
uh, interesting and sort of mimics um, some of the Dartmouth Health Atlas uh, type data on uh, utilization. Okay, so I would order that we need to go beyond first order thinking as part of the solution to testing. So that's the idea that's like, say you have chest pain and you think let's order troponin. Well, um, second order thinking would be, let's think of chest pain. Well, what are we worried about? We're worried about ischemia potentially. And if we ordered a test, how will that change the patient in some way? Will it help us give this patient more of what they need? And one, and then if it will, that we should order the test. You know, one could argue that certainly there's patients where testing is very helpful, you know, and I think as long as people pause and think about it, it's often pretty clear when it's helpful. Um, but, you know, say a, a patient has ST elevation with a typical story for MI in the ER, you don't need the troponin test. They should be going straight to the cath lab or on the other end of the spectrum if they're a hospice patient who has no interest in aggressive management, um, they also don't need the troponin test. So pausing to do second order thinking is something I'd encourage. And, and how can we tr uh, better train our intuition for, for diagnosis? Well, I mean, I think a lot of the problem is that we don't approach this as training. You know, we teach this as a two by two table, but uh, we don't practice it. And it really should be thought of as being like a foreign language where we need to practice verb conjugations and to, to do it many times so we can develop some intuition around it and uh, make probability estimates more automatic and calibrated. So more of the system one type thinking than system two. And not to think of this as a math problem with exact answers, but a gestalt type thing that we need to have the appropriate general gestalt. So to that end, we've tried to work on some tools that I'm hoping to share with you briefly. These are still in development, but the idea of having a video game that can help train intuition and uh, decision support uh, that I have an example from a COVID calculator. So let me try to switch over. So this is the idea of, of potentially better decision support. This is a COVID calculator that we created with CDC and NIH funding. And uh, so I'll orient this, uh, you to this. So this is a, um, this uh, window here gives you an idea of the probability of disease. So this is before testing. And then once we give more information, we can see um, after testing results and how to best interpret testing. So with COVID, we, we spent a lot of time doing this, but we uh, you can enter your state and county and get the seven day cumulative number of positive tests that's multiplied by a factor based upon CDC estimates of under testing. So say for Portland or for Oregon and Multnomah County, this is the estimate that you would get. So not that high for just the average person in that area. Um, but say like you live with someone who has COVID, your spouse, this is probably the, the highest risk factor for COVID. Well, then, then your pretest probability gets much higher. Um, and, uh, you know, and say, uh, you know, you have a loss of smell or taste then the pretest probability gets much higher. So, you know, then after that, you can think about testing. And so there's a number of different tests. Like, so let's, uh, you know, talk about PCR testing. And if we got, uh, you know, a negative result. Is that enough that we would say this person doesn't have COVID? Well, it makes it go from 40% down to 6.4%. So, you know, probably not for many questions. There's actually data on COVID looking at live virus um, where you can try to address contagiousness. And, uh, and actually PCR is probably better for this. Like the, the patient is probably um, fairly unlikely to be contagious um, based upon these viral um, uh, culture studies. Um, and then people talk about antigen testing. Well, we can compare, like, what does antigen testing mean? Well, like, you know, negative is not quite as important, but, you know, maybe, you know, with a positive test, 
actually a, a positive test result probably um, means more than with a PCR test. And that's because antigen is probably a little bit more specific for contagious disease, even though not so much for infection. So that's the idea of uh, trying to have better decision support that could be used to help people calibrate their estimates. And this is very different if we were to to make estimates very low, you can see that you know positive test results for the PCR mean almost nothing if you have very low pretest probability. The other part about training intuition that we're working on, so we are uh, changing the format of this right now. Graphic designers have changed things and we're trying to reprogram this, but this is uh, kind of our early version is to create a game. And so this game, if you start out, you'd hit go and uh, Let's see, bear with me. Let me try this again. So uh, I can set some different criteria and then I could uh, ask the game to start and it could uh, give me questions. So say a patient with a 5% pretest probability for coronary artery disease, do an exercise EKG test. So this is similar to that uh, study that I talked about. What, how likely are they to have disease with a positive test? So um, there's a timer up here, so I'm under time pressure to make a reasonable guess, but to go from 5%, well, I know specificity is quite high, so there's about 25 out of every 100 who will be false positive and only five. So uh, let me guess, I'll guess 17. Okay, so I did okay. And uh, then we can get feedback using this natural frequencies, which this is the idea from psychologists that seems to work better for training test interpretation that it can walk through and say, okay, if the way to think about probabilities would be thinking out of larger numbers. And we could see that uh, it's actually the correct answer is 11.2%, I guess 17%. So it would give me some points because that was still a reasonable answer because I had a, an appropriate gestalt. And you can see how if you do this with many different scenarios, you can start to get better at training your intuition to uh, guess approximately. All right, so let me, get back to the presentation, because um, that's really sort of a teaser for what we hope um, where this can go better. Um, for more about testing too, I'd encourage people to look at the website we're developing. It's called testingwisely.com. Um, also, I wrote an op-ed piece in the Washington Post a few years ago that, that addresses some of these issues. So treatment is similar. It's another exercise in probability. So what do I mean? So um, in modern medicine, there's diagnosis, at least a treatment, and then treatment itself is something that if, if you look at any clinical trials, this is generally the way they're set up, that you start out with a population that has a prior probability of outcomes. So you could say like, you know, in a patient with a pulmonary embolism, how likely are they to have a recurrent pulmonary embolism? And then you could say, okay, and you treat them, well, how likely are they to have um, the outcome now with treatment versus those who don't get treatment? And this can be done for harms and benefits, so you can get a, a clear view of what that treatment entails. So we tried to ask, um, do clinicians uh, think through this process in a similar fashion? So again, we had clinical cases and we tried to make them bread and butter. This was one where we said, consider Mr. Miller. He's a 62-year-old man with well-controlled hypertension on aspirin with new atrial fibrillation. He wants to know if he should start an anticoagulant like warfarin, warfarin or similar. We said, what would you tell Mr. Miller is the chance that warfarin will prevent him from having a stroke in the next year? That's the primary reason for anticoagulation in him. So if you looked at 100 people like Mr. Miller with atrial fibrillation, 
um, the, the data from uh, Chad's VAST2 type score would say that about one out of every hundred will develop a, a stroke in the com coming year. And the question really comes, how many benefit from treatment? So say you're being treated with warfarin, um, you know, and looking at this um, display, this is a hundred people. So if you treat them with warfarin, we know that the two will develop significant bleeding. So um, is the gray area the appropriate number for who will benefit from treatment? Is it 98%? So pretty much everyone who doesn't have an adverse event will benefit from treatment. Um, I've seen this in some pharma advertising. Or should we use the relative risk reduction, which is 30, 39 to 50% for um, reducing chance of stroke? You know, or you know, should we, we focus on the, the single patient, the patient who would have had a stroke, but for warfarin, which uh, may have prevented the stroke in that patient. So um, uh, shared decision-making type guides and uh, other interpretation guides, the literature argue that we should use this absolute risk reduction, which would be the 1% uh, in this patient. Um, and to be technically precise, an absolute risk reduction of 0.2 to 1%. When you ask, what is the chance that warfarin will help Mr. Miller from having a stroke in the next year? This graph represents the answers from clinicians. So the gray is what clinicians answered. And it's kind of like a, you know, a wavy, perfect distribution from zero to 100%. And uh, the, the green is the correct answer. The, the lavender is, displays the relative risk reduction, if that's what people were thinking about. And this black line is the median answer. So the median answer of what people would tell their patients is you have a 50% chance of benefiting from this treatment when probably shared decision-making um, experts and guidance would say you should tell them he has a 1% or less chance of benefiting. So a huge difference, right? I would do almost anything if you told me I had a 50% chance of benefiting versus I wouldn't do most things if you said there's a 1% chance of benefiting and there's harms. So um, in this study, beyond just asking for estimates, we also asked, um, uh, you know, would, would they treat similar patients in their practice? And we found that clinician estimates of benefit do impact patients. So this graph um, on the vertical represents the proportion of similar patients treated in their practice from zero to 100% and how much they estimated the, was the benefit of warfarin to the patient, Mr. Miller. And what you can see is if they estimated the benefit was under 15%, which is more in line with, with scientific evidence, they were much less likely to use warfarin in similar patients in their practice. This would be a, a median of about 10%. Whereas if they estimated um, higher effects, uh, they were much more likely to give it to their patients. So guidelines don't recommend treatment of Mr. Miller, and this really because prior risk is key. You could only prevent disease that would have occurred, which in this um, patient would be only a one in a hundred chance. Um, guidelines do recommend treatment of higher risk atrial fibrillation, and that's where I think some of the confusion comes in. Okay, so appreciation of small effects like this have led to this idea of precision medicine, which is really a theory largely. There's very few examples of, of it working so far. And uh, Nature had an article where they, they uh, called this imprecision medicine. And this is uh, just their demonstration of how likely drugs to, were to work against different conditions. You know, and if anything, kind of a rosy view. So if we accept the science of probability, then how do we talk about benefits and harms of treatment? Well, I think one thing we need to stop doing is talking about risk versus benefits. Um, this is comparing apples to oranges. 
you know, I think a much more fair comparison that's much more scientifically accurate as far as what we know about treatments is chance of benefits and chance of harms. We tried to argue for this in uh, JAMA last year, um, you know, and ho hopefully a few people heard it, but uh, I think it's, it's more difficult, but I think this actually is, is much more scientifically accurate that if for any treatment, there's a chance of benefit and a chance of harms and a chance of nothing, which is the biggest chance. So I would say that uh, talking to patients requires uh, knowing about absolute risk reduction, absolute harm, and then saying things like out of 100 people like you, one will develop a stroke with no treatment. With treatment, zero of, of to one out of that 100 will develop a stroke, but one um, of 100 more will develop serious bleeding, you know, which isn't the perfect, you know, it's not the easiest thing to discuss, but it's certainly more accurate than saying, I think this will work for you. I think you should do it, which is what I believe most of us do in, in general practice. Um, so this is an example I won't run through, but it's a uh, you know, Stephen Hahn who, who had the, the great job of being FDA commissioner under Trump, um, came out saying that plasma would have helped 35 out of 100 patients um, who had COVID. And that was based upon a relative risk reduction of 35% um, from a cohort study. And he was widely criticized for this um, when an absolute risk reduction was 3%, but then actually RCTs later found no benefit of plasma. So this is why I think it's important. This example is clear. It gives a very different message. Um, I talked about that some in this op-ed in the Washington Post uh, from last year, if people want to uh, delve into this in more detail. So I'd say right now, you know, it's maybe a time where, uh, you know, I feel this could be taken as uh, feeling down about medicine. And I should say that I love taking care of people, you know, and it was disappointing to learn that diagnoses and treatments aren't so key to this as taking time and, and showing concern. But, but I think the message really is that the good doctor isn't like HealthMD, you know, which is too bad because it's much more godlike and sexy and exciting. Um, but, you know, there's rarely a hidden clue to be uncovered and a certain diagnosis with a miraculous cure that just needs to be, be un, un, you know, uncovered. So I think instead the job is much more like being Mr. Rogers and accepting uncertainty and making decisions without being too cavalier or too risk adverse and finding a way to best involve and represent the patient's beliefs in the process. Um, and I would argue that accurate use of probability in medicine is limited by many factors. Um, I won't go into details about these, but I think there's lots of reasons, including human nature. Um, but I do think that if we learn more about it, um, we can do a better job in medicine. And I would argue that we overestimate the chance of disease by two to tenfold, overestimate benefits manyfold, and the changes how we treat patients. And each of us represents, repeats these decisions many times a day. So if we imagine that, you know, going to a full hospital or even across the United States, you know, if we could change this basic behavior, we could improve some of that up to one third of medical care that is overuse, and we could create a more scientific, sustainable, humane, and equitable system. And that could change, uh, you know, how we treat patients. So I won't run through these, but just leave this slide up. And most importantly, say thank you for your time and attention. And I'd be happy to uh, take questions or, or chat with you. Great. Thank you so much um, for your presentation, Dr. Morgan. Um, much to think about and lots to digest. And, and we'll leave that slide up there for others to read and contemplate. Um, please go ahead and put forward your, your questions or also your comments. We'd love for this to um, create some conversation, but I'll lead us off. We have um, 
one very specific question that you may be able to help us out with. This came when you were showing us the um, probabilities with the COVID diagnosis calculator. Um, and this person wondered whether vaccine status um, affects the pretest probability of having COVID uh, if symptoms. Great. So, um, yeah, so this is something we had to change. We built this calculator and then uh, the vaccine came out. And so uh, we did have to go back and uh, let's see, I'll make this kind of, I'll make your risk high and then say, but if you're vaccinated, your risk probably does drop down. And so we don't have perfect information for this, especially about being contagious, because there's this whole debate about, I mean, it's pretty clear vaccines make you less contagious because it makes you less symptomatic and it makes you less likely to have disease. But uh, so this is a, an estimate that I think is fairly well accepted. So vaccines do um, change your likelihood of being contagious or having infection. And we tried to build that in um, to this model. Great, thanks so much. I know we'll be looking at these websites some more. That's amazing work. Um, one uh, additional question um, as we, we think through practicing some of this, I wonder if you have particular strategies to work on setting a pretest probability. Um, some of the calculators require that we, we start from there. Um, occasionally, we have good guidance from epidemiologic studies. Um, wondered any tools you use to, to get that initial even pretest probability. Yeah, I mean, so this is, I mean, I think part of the big challenge of actually using probability for, for diagnosis that we kind of say, well, calculate a pretest probability. We won't tell you how, and then apply a test. Um, so. Um, you know, in primary care, especially like say with statin prescribing, you know, there there is better data and there are calculators, which, you know, at first, when I first heard about them, I was a little skeptical, um, but I find them actually to be sort of the best approach to probability. Um, for a lot of other diseases that we see, and I should say that I practice in the hospital exclusively, so there's very few things, especially for infectious disease where we're, you know, we don't have a lot of data behind a bunch of what we do outside of HIV. Um, I mean, I think that um, there's a few key steps, and that's really just remembering at least like to, to think about the incidence of disease, um, to, you know, to think about how likely the, the symptoms or risk factors are to change that, um, you know, and at least having like a rough sense of the pretest probability. Um, you know, calculators are out there, for, especially for cardiac disease, and there's Wells scores and some other for pulmonary embolism. I tend to think they a lot of them tend to overestimate a bit because they're they're um, developed from a, a high risk population, um, and I don't always think that they work in the day to day flow of, of you know primary care or busy medical care. So I think a lot of it's about trying to calibrate your own estimates to be roughly appropriate, you know, and to not have problems like base rate neglect or things where you know you don't think about common things being common and uncommon things being uncommon. Um, it's just kind of a, a general heuristic for that. Great, thanks. That's that's super helpful. And in fact, as I think about the the game that's being made, um, it seems to me that there's some benefit of just practicing the idea of it, um, even if you may not have numbers for all of the diseases and cases. Um, let's see some additional questions really starting to flow in here, um, and perhaps a little bit of overlap. Um, are there tools for clinical reasoning and decision-making that you recommend for use in practice or teaching? A little toolbox that we might take back? 
I mean, I wish there were. I've, I've been, uh, you know, delving into some of these cardiology tools because cardiologists have great data and, and they like creating calculators and such. Um, I mean, I would, we are trying to develop this with the Testing Wisely website, trying to have a calculator that would have kind of a standard approach for different diseases. And uh, literally, I met with programmers yesterday with the new design, and we're going round and round. And, uh, and we hope to have some tools for different general diseases that are a little bit more simple than some of the cardiology tools that may require a lot of specific information, which is kind of hard to use outside of the ER. Um, but I don't think there are that many tools. I mean, I think a lot of the ones that are out there even, you know, that are used in primary care aren't perfect, you know, because they're not calibrated that well, like say the Wells score or the center criteria for strep swabbing or, um, so I wish I, I could say like, here's a great set of tools, but I don't think that there's been enough focus on this in, especially kind of in a, like an easily translatable format. Yeah. Great, thanks. We'll continue to stay tuned. I know this is an area I'm passionate about um, teaching. I'm always on the, the lookout. Um, here's a question. Um, patients often question how or why we came to a diagnosis. How can we get them to buy into making decisions based on gestalt versus lab or test results? Um, this, this listener feels like this is a daily struggle um, with regard to patient communication. I mean, I, I imagine it is. Um, I mean, I, I find that it, it varies a lot from patient to patient. And uh, I do think setting your expectations low um, and, you know, and trying to, to figure out where your patient is. Um, you know, I, I find that sometimes when I'm discussing, trying to engage in shared decision making about something that may be a bit complex, it may be obvious that the patient really doesn't want to, to make a decision. You know, they want a recommendation and to say yes or no. Um, other times, I think patients may really think they know what they want, and it may be hard to talk them out of that. And, you know, we talk about like antibiotic overuse and infectious disease. You know, I think sometimes you can find a middle ground or you can find a, a way to, to delay that. Um, but I do think trying to shape kind of a positive narrative of something that you are doing that, you know, be following up on this at a later time or, you know, if this doesn't get better in a certain amount of time to, to come back and then do the test. I mean, I do think there is a there's an overbelief in clinicians, but certainly among the general public too, about the value of technology and testing. So um, it is just a challenge. And, you know, I applaud people who are trying to engage with that. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of allure for precision medicine, um, genetic testing. Had interesting questions with me and my resident in clinic uh, just just yesterday. Um, but uh, yeah, that has been a really helpful strategy to, to think about um, contingency plans as a plan. Um, here's a comment. Thank you for your presentation. I really appreciate your approach to illuminating the problem of understanding and teaching medical decision making. Um, and here we have a couple of comments and questions that I'll do my best to interpret. Um, I think um, what our physician is referencing is that in many um, studies, there is a significant um, positive placebo effect, uh, maybe in the order of 20% or more. Um, and so asking with things like FDA drug approval, um, is any of that taken into consideration as a correction when we're looking for whether something perhaps is efficacious above and beyond what we might expect from a placebo? 
Yeah, I mean, so I think that's a, a great point. A lot of clinical trials, you know, it's uh, placebo versus control, like at least in the easiest uh, to interpret drug trials where, you know, it's double-blinded, et cetera. And, and, you know, things like SSRIs, you do find a pretty significant placebo effect um, in both arms, of course, because you get the drug or control. Um, but the, the effect um, size is often trying to look at the difference between placebo versus control. So I'd argue that a lot of the, you know, the absolute risk reduction is usually um, subtracting the placebo effect. Um, and that's not to say I, I don't think the placebo effect is important. And I think, you know, trying to be aware of that and harness that. And that's probably part of the benefit of things like homeopathy or something where, you know, placebo effect can be full and, you know, side effects outside of nocebo type effects are, you know, pretty much non-existent. Great. Thanks for your, for your comments there. Um, just a, a question of my own while we wait to see in our last couple moments, if there are any others from our audience. Um, thanks for sharing your studies. And I have to say um, a little, very insightful and a little bit shocking with some of the physician um, estimates with regard to both diagnosis and treatment. Um, so humbling and things to think about. Um, I guess I do wonder if it's rooted in our, our drive to diagnose and to help patients that we want to do well. Um, but my actual question is, um, assuming we can train ourselves better on this um, and, uh, and, and feel like we're making well-informed, numerically accurate recommendations for our patients, what is your sense of recommending to patients, um, not necessarily as opposed to, but um, I'll just say, and, and, making a recommendation um, balanced against engaging patient in shared decision-making. Yeah, I mean, so two thoughts. I mean, the, the first one is I, you know, I think that any, I mean, I really do believe in, uh, you know, clinicians and especially physicians is kind of the basis for a lot of change in medicine, even if it's a slower approach to, to convince people. Like I, I think of, you know, Physicians really should be, you know, central to a lot of change, and at least like having physicians believe in the change, um, even if there's lots of administrative, you know, forces that are at play. Um, I mean, I, um, and sorry, the second question, uh, the the question that you asked was um, related to how how do you get uh, patients engaged in discussing? Yeah, and I I guess you know assuming that we as physicians get better at our misestimates. Um, how appropriate is it to, to then use um, our good estimates to really make a recommendation to a patient, you know, versus expecting that in every or all scenarios we're engaging the patient to truly understand the absolute risk reduction? Yeah, I mean, I think most of the time, most patients probably shouldn't be burdened with being told, you know, sort of uh, lots of mathematically sounding uh, information. I mean, I think that um, giving, you know, for, for certain people, like say the engineers you're taking care of, maybe those numbers are helpful. I think for a lot of other people, giving them kind of general sense and, and then maybe giving them thoughts on, you know, either what the guideline says or what you would do personally. Um, I think patients often are looking for that sort of thing. And, and I do know that uh, clinicians sometimes make, make choices because they think patients want something. And it'll turn out that the patient doesn't necessarily want something. They just want to be taken care of, you know, and, uh, and, and a lot can be gained by that open discussion. I think that is a wonderful thought to end on. Our patients want to be taken care of. I couldn't agree with you more, Brad. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Thorne. I appreciate your time. All right. Thanks, everyone, for your time.